a random encounter at a broadcasting facility, a shared interest and love of all things Marvel, Excelsior, a misinterpreted program title, and behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick, podcaster and comic book enthusiast, and Eddie Wilson, upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, I'm Jim Calafuri, 30-year veteran of comics and creator of Ned, Lord of the Pit, and you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. Eddie Wilson just pretended he was in the We Are the World music video, putting his hand on his headphone. But before we get to the usual rigmarole of today's episode, we want to tell you all at home, how to get a hold of us on them and our social medias, as well as let you all know, hey, we got a special guest on the other end of the tin cans. And he's Peter Melnick. Okay, go ahead. Eh, good enough. Go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at The Marvelists. Find us on individual social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick. And on TikTok, God knows why, at Peter Melnick, but better. You can also find Eddie Wilson only on one social media platform, really. Really? Yeah, Instagram like, at Eddie9193. I think he said Tic Tac, and it's a nice breath freshener. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I slur my words sometimes, Eddie. I just had a concussion. Jeez Louise. No, I didn't. But although I have a haircut, and it's the result of a bird shitting on my head. I think I told you that story, didn't I? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was a shame. And then I walk in, and you go, nice haircut. Like you just noticed it, you know. You saw me a week ago. Post-bird. It's still holding up well. Thank you. Well, not uh, it's cleaned out. Except it's for the head injury part. Okay. I didn't get a concussion. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you can also find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms: TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Spotify. You name it, we're there. RSS feed. RSS. I hear you call it. Anyway, you can also find us on iTunes. Rate, review, subscribe, share. Five star if you're ever so, so inclined. inclined. Oh, we finished each other's sandwiches no, now. No, we just parallel lines here. Blondie. You can also find us on patreon.com slash. The Marvelists. Where you can support the show for as little as $3 a month to as much as. <laughs> that was a big number. You say so. Thank you. You can find us on there. Support for $3 a month. You get early access to episodes. $5 a month gets you the ability to get early access to episodes also. And the Fantastic Four podcast we do called Fantastic Voyage. We're also going to be dropping some new material on that feed for the $5 and up tier. Featuring a podcast where Eddie reads comic books he's never read before in his life. Such as the opening episode, which will be... The Dark Knight Returns. Eddie Wilson has never read that book. But as of this recording, I just finished it this morning. Ed, OMG. We're really trying to figure out a title for that show, but when we get it, it's, it's going to be a long, convoluted title, but I can't wait. You can also support for $8 and up, and you get the ability to guest host on this program or suggest episode topics. Hooray and so forth. Also support the show on belowthecollar.com slash The Marvelists. And get our Dad Joke Immune t-shirt because, well, God willing, if you've made it this far, you are certainly Dad Joke Immune. You can also say hey. Love the show. Thanks. That's cool. I like that. You're a fan, too? Uh Uh-huh. I like that Eddie guy on the show. He's pretty pretty spiffy. (laughs) Spiffy. Now, Eddie, joining us on the other end of the tin cannon string, he is an acclaimed artist. He is an acclaimed creator in the realm of the comical books. He is Jim Califore. Hello. 
Did I get your name last name pronounced correctly? Because I always just see the name. I've actually become numb to it. I don't even hear when people say my name anymore. Uh, it's uh, Califuri. It sounds like California, but you get angry at the end. Fury. See, that's right. I actually know a Belfury, and you know I'm so used to that name, so I kind of get that with the Califuri and whatnot. And I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm talking with my hands for the audio Jim podcast. Is, you know what, Jim? As long as it's not calamari, unless you like that, and that's fine. Yeah. Well, the only place they ever get it really right all the time is Italy. That was Absolutely. And they probably say Fiore. <laughs> As Eddie yes, proceeds they say to. with gusto. That's exactly right. Califiore gusto. <laughs> <laughs> On the side. I yeah. love I love any opportunity Eddie has to talk with his hands because he really just went into that. You know, that that's Eddie uh, that's, showing his acting elements. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations on the 10-minute plays. Debut. Not, yeah. Okay. Not caring that anybody's going to see his hands or not. I know. Exactly. But, yeah. Which is a shame for a lot of people because Eddie Wilson is a delightful hand model. <laughs> Now, Jim, first off, congratulations on the original Kickstarter for Ned. Lord of the Pit. Thank you. And now we are in the quote-unquote endgame. As of this recording on June, June 22nd, you're going to be doing a finishing up the second Kickstarter for Volume 2. And best of luck to you. Thank you. And I don't want people to are listening think if they miss Volume 1, they're out of luck there are pledge levels on the volume two pledge for both one and two and there's even a pledge level for just volume one for anybody who missed volume one so let's go back to start off with that jim and talk about how it came about and the first part of it let's go from there okay i was doing uh sort of mental exercises thinking about the worst people to be x like who would be the worst people to be a superhero or who would be the worst person to be a ruler of a pit in hell? And that would be somebody named Ned. <laughs> That's what I came up with. Um, I kick-started the book about two years ago, I think, for the first volume. Um, Ned is just an average guy uh, in New York City who's having enough trouble with his career as an actor and his girlfriend who's talking about marriage. Uh, when he finds out that his family, who he's estranged from, is heavily connected to the darker side of the uh, the world. Let's put it that way. Mm. Um, his father is uh, connected to hell directly. He's one of the s- rulers of the seven pits of hell. There are seven of them under the auspices of Lucifer. And uh, Ned is now the next in line. And he starts having... Some interesting things happen. He starts seeing demons walking on the street, and nobody else can see them, it seems, but they talk to him and they see him. Uh, he runs into uh, succubi who want to have sex with him right in the middle of the street. Uh, he has a encounter with a zombie roommate. He has angels that are after him. Uh, and it's really nothing he wants. It all happens very fast. But it's nothing he wants. He wants to get out of it. uh, The first volume, he was somewhat carried along. In the second volume, he's actively trying to get out of his inheritance. And unfortunately, there's other forces that really want to help him get out permanently. Would it be spoiling anything to say that the other forces that are trying to get him out permanently want to take that position? Well, there's several forces. Um, There are some angels, uh, cherubim. Not the little babies with wings, 
Those are actually pudi. They were mislabeled back in the Renaissance. They're actually called cherubs. Oh. Um, cherubs are part of the heavenly host of seraphims, archangels, etc. I'm giving you a little history lesson. Here. Yeah, no, I only knew that from religious upbringing, cherubim and seraphim, and you know, one song at least that you sing in church if you are that church-going type, yeah. There you go. Um, they're sort of, they patrol the earth for uh, the good side, that's one faction that's after him. And uh, there's also introduced towards the end of the first volume other characters that are after him, but we don't let you know who. And they definitely need him out of the way. So there's other things afoot at work, as it were, um, is what it sounds like, again, without giving away too much. Uh, subtitle, though, if it's from just like the first part, A Comedy of Terrors. So we've got different elements going on here, I would think. Yes, it's a lot of uh, a lot of humor. I hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like I said, somebody named Ned should never be a Lord of the Pit. So we, we we're starting off right from there. Um, and uh, comedy of terrors is just a play on words. There we go. Does Ned fancy himself at least from the start of the first? We get to know this character on the first part of it. Uh, what type of person? Uh, I think he said every day, but but maybe uh, does he have a specific? Uh, job or any goals he's an actor he's uh been struggling with his career lately um his goals are honestly he's a little bit of a slacker and a little bit of a person who's will not hesitate to tell you what's wrong with the world and everything around him and he's a little bit of a commitment phobe which is brings up issues with his girlfriend. Now, in regards to this, you know, the whole element of the Kickstarter aspect. Kickstarter is one of those things where it is very much a uh, thing that can lead to a lot of anxiety. I know a number of Kickstarter creators that have dealt with it. What are some of the ways you deal with those issues with Kickstarter? You mean the campaign or the fulfillment? The ca- oh, well, <laughs> the, the campaign especially, you know, especially in the quote-unquote final few hours. Well, it's always sweating it. Uh, depending on how much you've raised. Um, in this case, as of this date, not the date of your posting, but of the date of this recording, it's $2,100 short of its goal at the moment. Um, and you really don't have a lot of time to be too tense about making your goal um, because you end up spending, every time I go on the computer to do something, I end up doing seven different things for about four hours. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, a lot of maintenance to do during the campaign, sending out reminders, sending out to friends to help promote it, sending out press releases, doing podcasts. Um, so it's really just sort of a rush to the end. When you ended up doing the uh, first Kickstarter for uh, Volume One of Ned, how did you, was that during uh, COVID or pre-COVID? No, that was before COVID. Um, that was a year before COVID, but I'm not quite sure the date. Sorry. Um, COVID did impact. I have one uh, retailer who's really a great supporter of all my books on Kickstarter, and I generally go do appearances at his store, which I'm actually going to be doing this weekend uh, down in Virginia. I was supposed to go to his store basically when COVID hit. Mm. I shipped the book uh, February, January, February. Before, just before COVID hit. So this actually 
that's that that's the impact that COVID had on me with this was me getting to uh, do the appearance in the store, which I'm doing now, or will be. Because I was going to ask in regards to the whole element of promotion of a Kickstarter, like in the pre you know COVID times. It was very much, you know, there were venues such as going to a convention and promoting it there, doing, you know, again, the podcasting circuit, doing the, you know, the social media scene. When you end up having like the conventions removed from the like removing conventions from the equation, did it affect much initially for this one versus the original one? I usually make my Kickstarters go over. I usually Kickstarters are about a month. and I try to get them go across two shows. I can promote it to two shows. Um, this Kickstarter is, has not had that opportunity. I got to promote it at one smaller show. Um, but also leading up to it, uh, it would have been nice if I had had a whole year of conventions. I would have had the volume one there at the conventions. So it would have been priming anybody who hadn't seen the book who picked it up at the conventions for the second um, Kickstarter. So I, I did lose momentum on that, but I didn't want to wait another year before going into volume two. So that's why I lowered my goal for the second volume to try and ensure that I got there. So I, I, I lose in that respect. And that's, that's actually, a, a, you know, that helps a lot, especially since I usually take mailing lists at uh, conventions leading up to, I did it leading up to volume one. I would have done it leading up to volume two, just people asking me, oh, what are you doing now? And I'll say, well, this is going to be coming to Kickstarter. Let me have your email if you want to be notified, and they would give me their email. So I could have an email list right there to send out as soon as the Kickstarter went. So I kind of missed out on that buildup to it. With respect to comparing one versus the other, Jim, the, the new one and that you were handing out flyers because we met at the Garden State Comic Fest, 160-page uh, graphic novel for this part two. First one, similar length, and... After the second one, it kind of ties it up, the story, or? The second one ends what would be considered the first major arc. We definitely come to a conclusion at the end of two. There are a few threads, minor threads, let, left dangling. Nothing like the, uh, nothing anywhere near the cliffhanger that volume one had. Um, there, is an there is an epilogue introducing a future conflict for Ned uh, in Volume 2, but Volume 2 definitely comes to an end, so that if I never continued, there wouldn't be any major unanswered issues. And for yourself, doing this Kickstarter, and I'm really relatively new, I'm kind of like, okay, I've heard the term, and I kind of have a basic idea what it's all about. Is this the first time you've done one, and, you know, whatever it was that brought you to do a Kickstarter? We just discussed this. Do you, what, do you, rewind. Okay. <laughs> I had done my first Kickstarter years ago. Uh, Gail Simone and I had done a, a really great run on Secret Six at, at DC. Uh, that got a lot of attention, a lot of press, and then they ended up canceling it when they did the new 52. And after that, I just had uh, been talking to some people, and they said, hey, do something at Kickstarter. So I talked to Gail, and we launched not tell you the year. Sorry, I don't have the year in, in my head when we did it, but this is going back five years or six years. We did a book called Leaving Megalopolis, uh, where a event happens that turns all the superheroes of a city into homicidal maniacs. Gail writing, my drawing, I also wrote a little backup story in that. 
Uh, it was 2014, by the way. Thank you. You're welcome. I went to Dr. Google. Dr. Google. Jeez, that's a little grand term for him. <laughs> um, so we did that Kickstarter. I did a smaller Kickstarter for my website. I have a gag strip that runs on my web website every Friday, a single-panel gag strip that ended. I think I ended it two years ago. I ran for about five years with it. I did a smaller one with that. Uh, and then my next one was Volume 1 of Ned. And uh, Kickstarter is just great. It allows us to do, as creators, what we want to do, anything we want to do. And the, the collectors are there to support us, and, and they really get something that is really all us. I don't have an editor, especially on something like a humor book, with, which, which Ned is. Uh, I don't have an editor saying, could you take this seven-page sequence down to three pages, even mm -hmm. though it completely kills the joke? Yeah, because so. humor is a subjective art form, and to be able to you know, have an editor saying, hey, change this, 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 and this, it, you know, it's, it's not fair to the creator, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's, so it's a very freeing, and I, I, I love everybody who's backed my book. It's, 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 a, it's a, a big thing for me that people will... Say yes here. Now wait Buy a second. Wait a second, Jim. I'm backing your Kickstarter. Does that I mean love you love you me? Oh, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. No, it's it's weird. I know it's corny, but it's you know it takes a lot for somebody to say yes. I trust you. Because also Kickstarter has something of a bad reputation for some people. They they'll pledge to a book and then never see anything. Mm. And while I have experienced delays in my books, I've never not delivered on the book. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't. I don't know why some of these people just run away with the money. I, 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 this is what I want to be doing, and people backing it lets me do what I want to do. The other thing is with Kickstarter, it's a, you know, a much more quote-unquote intimate kind of project to deal with because of the fact something isn't there yet, but the people are like, well, I believe in this enough. Let me give you my money towards it so it can come to fruition. Yes, exactly. And, you know, ourselves on our end, a uh, friend of the show, Ryan Tavares, he is doing a Kickstarter on his own uh, with an, a writer called A Game of Doubles. And it's, you know, it's a tennis whodunit graphic novel. And it's, like, got, you know, multiple versions of how it'll end, like, you know. And it's, it, it is very much one of those things where you see something, you, you su end up supporting what you really want to see. And, you know, with a project like Ned... Ned is a fun idea. Ned is a funny idea as well. And I'm seeing this, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll put some money down for it because that is something I want to see. I want to experience because, you know, look at comics, the big two, technically the big four, you know, they don't always have something I want. But if I look to the, you know, the indie scene, there's a lot that I want and a lot I can be able to obtain through that. Right. And there's a lot of, a lot of um, accessible levels that people put on their Kickstarters, where it's just you can get the, the PDF digital. You could get the book. But then you, like on mine, I have levels where people can get commissions, uh, two different size commissions. One's more of a con style, and the other one's a full 11 by 17 illustration. I have art from the first book for sale. I even have, and there's only one left. There were four of them. There's only one left. I even have a level where you can get drawn into the book as a guest star. Hmm. I started doing that on Megalopolis. I've done it for three of my, uh, all three of my Kickstarters, where I draw somebody in as a background character. And in some cases, it's more than a background character. From, uh, from volume one, 
a person wanted her brother in, so she uh, pledged for her brother. And when I got the photo reference of him, I was like, oh, he'll work as one of the cherubim. The cherubim have angelic and both angelic and human form. So now her brother is basically a permanent character for the volumes one and two. That's cool. I like I like ideas like that where, you know, it can stick with the, you know, the quote unquote continuity of the product itself, you know. And and one thing with the Kickstarter awards, you know, again, going over to my friend uh, Ryan with his Kickstarter last year for Nomads. One of the things with that series that I found really interesting was he had one reward where it was you end up getting a leather bound copy of the book. It was like super big, super, you know, just looking like it came from the world of the story. And when it comes to making a Kickstarter reward, you know, of a certain tier, have there been tiers where you're just like, oh, no one pledged for that kind of tier. I would have liked to have done something really cool with that. Well, sometimes you have to be careful. Now you're getting into just the technicalities of Kickstarter. Some things seem like they'd be cool, like a mug or a T-shirt, but those things have minimums to print. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then there's a shipping cost on top of it. But there's usually minimums to print and say only two mugs are ordered, but you have to print 50. Mm. So there's some things that I, I think would be really cool to do, but wouldn't be eco- economically feasible in terms of the, the, the amount that's reached. One stretch goal I was looking into for Volume 2 was to have a slipcase for Volume 1 and Volume 2, which I thought would be nice. And that would obviously that could ship with the books. Jim, if I could uh, deviate from Ned a little bit, sure. Because a little bit of a bio that I found has um, this character Nocturne in an alternate reality, the daughter of Nightcrawler and Scarlet Witch. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, she was in Exiles, which I did for several years. That was started by Judd Winnick, and. There had been a book before Exiles, there had been a book called X-Men Millennial Visions. And that was a book Marvel put out of just pinups by creators of their vision of the X-Men in 25 years. Because I think it was like the 25th anniversary of the X-Men, or maybe the modern X-Men, you know, the Claremont X-Men. And I did a pinup, and I, I basically did it, and then we wrote text pieces with the, uh, with the pinup to explain our vision of the X-Men in 25 years. And I did something that I... I just basically wanted to do what I thought a comic book writer would do. So I had, uh, like, Apocalypse's son, Armageddon, was part of the team, uh, who had been originally a villain with his father. You know, so that's sort of a, a trope for comics. And that's where Nocturne came from. I had had her basically being the daughter of Nightcrawler. The original intention for... The Exiles book, before it was called Exiles, was going to be an anthology series of those pinups done as, I guess, one-shots or multi-parts in this anthology series. And they had actually had a contest at Marvel for voting for people's favorites out of the whole book. And uh, mine ended up coming in third, and I didn't even know it was going until the end of it, so I couldn't even... I couldn't even get my friends to vote for it because I found out after the fact. Um, Judd, when he came on board to do it, basically transformed it into the idea that was Exiles, which was uh, X-Men characters from a bunch of different realities. The main character was Blink from the Age of Apocalypse storylines come together and are being jumped through 
different realities by a character called the Time Broker to fix realities that had gone wrong. And Nocturne, he was one of the only was the only character that made it out of all of the X Men Millennial Visions pinups. Was he liked Nocturne and he pulled her in and used her as one of the characters. So it was nice to have that character running around, and uh, she actually made it into general population when she crossed realities and was an Excalibur for a while. But maybe later in the uh, run of Excalibur, or? Yeah, uh, this was when Chris Claremont took over Excalibur. Mm -hmm. So it was almost actually probably near the end of Excalibur. I don't know exactly how far the run went. Somewhere around 100 issues, I think. I, I faded off of it, but then I collected it, and like a lot of other stuff, have to catch up with it. So it just didn't ring a bell. I wasn't sure if Nocturne actually had a standalone issue, but maybe I'm getting that confused with a different N character. And in regards to you know some of your Marvel work, one of the most important stories is the silent issue of Deadpool from the Nuff Said, I believe, uh, month. <laughs> and Great American Zero. It's such a great issue, and you know, for those of you out there who may not know it, it's an homage to the silent issue of. G.I. Joe, a real American hero, but, <laughs> sorry, um, but in regards to the whole, you know, thing, of how how did that come about? They just called me. I'd been working a lot. The editor at the time was Mike Martz. I had worked for him at D.C. Uh, on a book called Gotham Underground that I did with Frank Terry, um, and I had wor actually worked with him at Marvel before he went to D.C. I had worked on uh, another book that he was assistant editor on, then he went to I worked at DC, then we went back to Marvel. They bounce around a lot. And uh, he was editing Deadpool. And I had done a bunch of Deadpool issues. Um, and this was, uh, he thought of me immediately for the silent issue. Um, I've, done a, I've done more than a few. I did another silent issue, I think, for Deadpool also. And I've done a lot of sequences where, uh, like in uh, Leaving Megalopolis, Gail had a fight scene that she wanted to do in the second volume. And uh, I said, okay, just tell me where you need point A to point Z or wherever. And I did the whole fight, and it just, the storytelling, she uh, really liked it so much she didn't dialogue anything for the whole fight scene. Um, I really try to make my storytelling um, coherent is the best way to put it, so that the dialogue isn't necessary. You don't have to have someone espousing some dialogue because I missed it in the art. Um, so I guess that was kind of the natural choice to do the silent issue. And in regards to that issue, it's just it, it kind of ties back over to one of the things you mentioned with Ned, where you don't have to deal with an editor. It's kind of interesting to see in regards to comedy comics, like a Deadpool or like you know, a booster gold over at the Distinguished Competition. But you see <laughs> characters like that, and you see stories like that, I feel like it is very much in par with what you said of uh, comedy is a little bit harder to do with an editor involved because you don't see much of it, but there is a demand for it. Yes, and with after all the years I've been working, um, I've ha I got usually have very good relationships with the editors and the writers. They know I know what I'm doing. So a lot of the times on my runs with Deadpool, I did with um, Priest, was the writer on the book. Um, they trusted me to 
land the joke correctly. If I needed to add, if I knew I needed to add a panel here or a panel there. A lot of times, especially with comedy in a, in a static medium, it's it's a beat panel where the character has a moment before the joke or before the joke lands that really lets it land well. It's this, it's, it's sort of uh, I remember a moment in a uh, I think it was a, I think it was a movie Chicken Run. One of the rats. The rats are sitting there at the end, and all, every, all the chickens are dancing, and there's two male rats, and they're sort of cockney rats. And the one rat says to the other one, you want to dance? And the other one takes a beat and says, yeah, all right. But the joke isn't there if he says, you want to dance? Yeah, all right. You need that moment where what is he going to say? And the unexpected thing then comes, yeah, all right. It's that beat moment. A lot of times I would be adding those kind of panels in just to help the joke land. Like a strategic pause. Yes. Or in the Eddie and the Cruises movie. Yeah, or Zesura, I think, in poetry. Yeah. If you're reading a a movie script, they'll they'll usually put in beat. Cool. Between jokes. I like how Eddie adds beats to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Sonny and Cher, hashtag. Even when you don't need them, they're added. Oh. (laughs) Don't we know that? Okay. And with the the whole issue of Kickstarter with the, you know, upcoming Ned Volume 2, I'd like to know, what would the audience, or how would you sell the series to the audience if they are contemplating going for the Kickstarter? I'd sell it, honestly, as it's not a farce. There's a lot of humor in there, obviously, being a comedy, but it's it, it deals with some serious issues and some very serious moments. It's uh, if you're in the elevator pitch, you could say it has a, it does have some roots from Buffy and other books and uh, uh, series like that. I mean, even something like Galaxy Quest, which is a farce, has serious moments in there. So I really try to get to the serious moments in, and, and not just have it be the hangover. Two last things. Jim, we'll let you go. I was going to ask back on your other characters and other work that you've done. Had you settled into and, be, I don't know, maybe had a favorite that you liked working on, character, title, anything like that? In the mains? In the mainstreams? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it, Nocturne was, was always great to work on because I also got to write, write and draw two issues of Exiles that I did the backstory, which related to that uh, Marvel Millennial Visions pinup. But I've been lucky. I've worked with some great people. I worked with Gail Simone. I worked with Peter David. I worked with Judd Winnick on Exiles. And I got, uh, I got a, I did work with Frank Thierry on Gotham Underground, which was a nine-issue uh, Batman uh, maxi series where I did the covers. They all connected together to make one giant cover. The original art was like 20 by 30. Um, I got to draw every Batman character I could want to draw. Um, so those are sort of the highlights. It's who I've gotten to work with. Um, and getting to work with me on Ned, Ned Lord of the Fit, it's been a lifelong dream to work with myself. <laughs> well, that reminded me, too, when you said the uh, covers connected on Gotham Underground. I'm not totally familiar with the title, but I will go look that up. It reminded me immediately of the uh, official, when the original official Marvel handbook, uh, handbook of the Marvel Universe and all those covers would connect. In fact, um, I remember getting... For I don't know, it was relatively inexpensive for 1989. The $15 for a 50 by well, it came it became a 50 by 50 frame job that was that's now hanging in my basement of all those together and stuff. They actually made a poster. 
DC of uh, Gotham Underground's covers all together as one. And it's actually up in the comic shop in Big Bang Theory. Is it really? Cool. Yeah. I, well, this is also how I found out they changed the posters in the background all the time because a couple shows later it was gone and a different poster was moved around. So they would move the posters around in the shop. But I know the exact episode where it is. Um, it's where Sheldon is playing Will Wheaton. I can't remember what game they were playing, but they were playing it at the shop. Okay. And uh, I was, it was the old shop. It wasn't the new shop that they had in the later, scenes, later seasons. And whatever episode that is, I can't tell you exactly, mm-hmm. um, I was sitting watching it, and I'm looking, and I'm like, hey, that's my poster. <laughs> now so I, re- I recorded it, and then when my wife came home, I played it, and I'm, we're, we're, we're watching it. You know, I'm making believe I didn't watch it. And then it came to that point, and I paused it, and I said, now, you should notice something. And she's looking, and she's looking, and she's looking. She goes, ah, your poster! <laughs> so that was fun. That's tremendous. Jim, any stuff that's uh, coming up for you that you're working on, or... I'm concentrating on Ned. Um, as long as I can get it funded, that's what I want to be doing. With uh, Ned, you know, and just comics in general, like the, I feel like the end goal is to see it adapted in so many different forms. And if you had your opportunity to put it in a form, an idealized form other than comics, what would you have it be as? A streaming series, a movie, television, aerosol? A series. Really? Television? I think it would work better as a series. It's, there's a lot going on. Something like that, I mean, we've got uh, the first The first volume is 160 pages. There's 130 pages, I think, of story. The second volume is a hundred, over 150 pages. And uh, one of the things about what's great without having, with having this uh, crowdfunded way to work on it, I can always say, damn, I need another page here, and I could just add it right away without calling the editor. It's a lot, and if it got condensed into a movie, there's a lot to lose. That's why I've seen like a lot of uh, tell or a lot of comics. They were supposed to be a film. Like you look at uh, Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon's Preacher. Like, could you imagine that as a movie? No, it's it's impossible. Same with no. Sandman. Same with uh, Why the Last Man would be terrible as a movie, but yes, yeah. you know. I, I, it's coming as a series. Yeah, and again, that's where these things they will benefit from them. And I feel like a lot of uh, a lot of major studios are realizing that doesn't need to be a movie. It can be done as a series. Like you look at Sweet Tooth. Sweet Tooth, I believe, was rumored to be a movie for years, and they're just like, nah, Netflix, and it works. You lose a lot of depth. You lose a lot of discovery of not only the main character. You lose discovery of all the supporting characters instead of having to have big moment reveals within the first half hour or the first hours so that you know who this character is so you can get onto the action. You, can, you get to spread it out over multiple episodes with uh, multiple climaxes and multiple actions. And especially with condensing to a movie, you're going to lose characters. You're going to lose those little characters that you really liked. Their moments will be gone even if they're in there in the background. Uh, because there's just not time to do everybody the justice they deserve. When I hear the plot of Ned, though, and just the overall feel and vibe and the humor to it, the very first thing I think of, it would make a damn fine like LucasArts uh, point-and-click adventure kind of game. 
Like in the same vein of like, you know, uh, Full Throttle or Sam and Max or Day of the Tentacle, like stuff like that. Okay, cool. Let me know when you've made the deal. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> I totally got lost with Day of the Tentacle for well, sure. It's, it's a so, good game. Maniac I'll take Mansion. your word up on That's fine. That's fine. It's got purple tentacles and green All tentacle. I just start thinking of is tentacle porn and then I'm lost. Yeah, we don't need to think about that on, on anyone's behalf. Sorry. <laughs> that that I went to when you said multiple climaxes and I was like, whoa, where are we oh, going here? Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. That's exactly that. That means it's time to finish now. What do you think? Okay. So I think this is going to wrap this episode up. <laughs> Jim, okay. before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Well, first off, last plug, last plug for Ned. The simple uh, link is nedlordofthepit.net. So .net on that. That'll go right to the campaign. Uh, in, on social media, I'm on, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on uh, Instagram at Jim underscore Calafiore. And then I have my website, jimcalafiore.com. Kickstarter for Ned runs until? July 1st is the end of the campaign. It's all or nothing. Jim Calafuri with Ned, Lord of the Pit, A Comedy of Terrors, Part 2. For the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Jim Calafuri. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! It's time for another round of Obsessed with Marvel. All right, so multiple choice question number 622 reads... Armbar. Richards. Who was not one of the writers of the storyline The Other? Who was not one of the writers of the storyline The Other? Choices are Peter David, Dan Slott, Reginald Hudlin, or J. Michael Straczynski. Hudlin. Because if I remember correctly, The Other was this big multiple uh, Spider-Man storyline. Straczynski was on Spider-Man. Slot was doing some title, and uh, Peter David was doing uh, Friendly Neighborhood, I think. Oh. This is 2006 or seven. Could be. The book Hudlin. is 2008, but, you know, you seem to be up. I thought Hud the other was a Spider-Man story. Yeah, and Hudlin was on uh, Black Panther at the time, so it wouldn't have crossed over. Jim. Yeah, I knew that, but you spoke up too soon. <laughs> <laughs> he just right cut you off, so to speak, broadsided even just about. I was ready. All right, so we're going to say Hudlin. I'm just going along for the ride. Here we are, letter C, and it's not C. It's B. That is Dan Slott. Peter's going to say this book is defective or something. I knew it was Dan Slott, but you cut me off. <laughs> there we are. All right, well, this is the way the book pages turn. Let's uh, go up, 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 and away. 2004-03. Just missed that page. Here we go. And one more page. Can do this. Who got to go further back in time for me, for sure. <laughs> well, they, you know, I'm at the mercy. Uh, we all are of this, you know, little device attached to the bottom corner of the book that just digital readout tells me what question to go to. All right, whom, <laughs> whom did Captain Simon Savage encounter in issues two through four from 1968? How's that? Of Captain Savage and his Leatherneck Raiders. Whom did Captain Simon Savage encounter? Oh Was God. it? The, <laughs> I didn't even get to see the answers. The hand. Was it Baron Strucker and Hydra? Was it the Red Skull or was it the Yellow Claw? Captain, the yellow Claw. Yellow Claw. Didn't we do this question before? I don't recall. I want it. I'm, I'm going to go with what Jim went with, but. All right. 
Let's try the yellow claw letter D, Captain Savage. No, it says the answer is B, Baron Strucker and Hydra. Oh, well. Yeah, you know. Those answers said with such conviction and just totally turned down with the bzzzt. All right. It's the nature of the book or something to that effect. 1365. How's that for going back? 1365 reads, who was Nathaniel Essex? Choices are Mesmero, Mr. Sinister, Albion, or Britannic. Who was Nathaniel Essex? Again, Mesmero, Mr. Sinister, Albion, or Britannic. I think, and I could be wrong, he was one of the... Uh... Maybe I'm wrong. I'm, for some reason, I'm just... I'm just focusing on the Hellfire Club. Hmm. Um, but I'm going to go with Albion. I was stuck myself, I think, between Albion and Britannic for some reason because I'm not equating Nathaniel Essex to... I was thinking Mesmero. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm. Well, we're going to go with the guest choice and say letter C, Albion. And it is... No. <laughs> it is B, <laughs> Mr. Sinister. Really? I don't... Okay, well, yeah. Eddie, get... Get uh, Tom Brevoort on the Get line. Get Tom Brevoort. He, <laughs> we are we are truly breaking ground here, or digging a hole. <laughs> no, no, smart. no. Dig up, stupid. <laughs> Have you had Kurt Busick on? He declined. Oh, because he is yeah. he is an encyclopedia. Yep. Tom Brevoort. I think we'd have to go head to head or hat to hat, perhaps. <laughs> I was going to make the same joke. As Peter knocks the microphone. Well, we've had Tom Brevoort in studio, and he's uh, he's local to us. Actually, he's really really nice guy. We've got, we I think really need to put him on like speed dial or something. Phone a friend. <laughs> Feels like it. All right. I got I got a Marvel trivia question for you. Okay. What is the significance of six one six? Six one six. That's the. It, it comes from uh, Excalibur, like with Alan right. Davis, right? With the yeah. uh, the Marvel Universe, each uh, indication with the Captain Britain Corps. But look it up. It's actually the alternate number for the devil. Huh. If you, if you do some research, you'll find that there are people who believe that is the true number of the, of the, the beast. And because there was an ancient piece of parchment found where the number was 616. They believe that the Satan influenced future copies of the Bible by having them make 666 the number so that people would not know his true number. You sure it wasn't just a crease in the parchment? That <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's one of the theories out there, and I, I know Alan Moore knew that, and I just love the fact that Marvel embraces the number mm. so much. There's another Marvel number i think isn't there besides 616 is maybe a four digit number yeah there's i think 16 something with uh the uh, ultimate universe there's oh, uh, there's oh, like oh. so many different numbers there are now okay I, I was just trying to get a handle on 616 and this took it a different way as well but but then i saw some other number and i didn't remember what it could possibly be but again catching up to do let's go to question number 4 for this round 489 and it says which of the following characters was not one of Norman Osborn's successors as the Green Goblin? Maybe this will be a little bit easier for all of us. Roderick Kingsley, Harry Osborn, Phil Ulrich, uh, sorry, Phil Ulrich, or Dr. Barton Hamilton? Not one of Norman Osborn's successors as the Green Goblin. Again, Roderick Kingsley, 
Harry Osborne, Phil Ulrich, or Dr. Barton Hamilton? I think it's Dr. Barton Hamilton. I'm going to go with Kingsley. Yeah, I don't think it's Hamilton. Uh, you know what? I'm going to favor what Jim said. Kingsley, letter A, and we've got one out of four right. Hey. <laughs> That's right, the letter A. You are so correct, Jim. <laughs> Should we quit while we're really behind or try to get ahead a little? Try to get a second one right? I would think so. Well, well one more for you, Jim, for I'm us. Here. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Okay. I'm so sorry to hear that. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Flip, flip, flip. Here we go. 15, 8, 0. Oh. For all the marbles. Okay. One, five, eight. One page more. Five, 15, And it says, who were the aliens who menaced the Earth in the 1970s Rampaging Hulk series? Who were the aliens? Were they the Krylorians, the Sagittarians, the Skrulls, or the Toadmen? 1970s Rampaging Hulk, I think that's the key here. Choice E, question mark in the Mysterians. Oh, stop Was that, that the um, magazine? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I think yeah. it was the Krylorians. Krylorians, okay, or again, Sagittarians, Skrulls, Toadmen. And I'm trying to, I'm, I'm kind of thinking if I can picture what the Krylorians look like. They weren't one big red eye, were they? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Jim, do you have any idea what they look like? I don't remember, Okay. but I read the Hulk. That was the book I grew up on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have just, the, the name just struck me. So I could be wrong, but the name just struck me. Well, Toadmen were, were in the original. Uh, yeah, comic book Red Hulk, correct? They were in the original Hulk run. Yeah, yeah. like issue I didn't, two or I didn't something. Think that they, I thought they created a new race for the Okay, magazine. well, Krylorian sounds good to me. I'm going with letter A again. It is correct. There you go. Hooray go. and so forth. Let's get out of here while we got the chance. <laughs> Someone... That's the only one I was sure on. I remembered that <laughs> from the magazine. Well done. <laughs>